peel off your suntans, you fun-sized Duncans. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. I hope you've had a charming week. Let's begin this week's episode with a piece of short prose. This prose was submitted by the actor Russell Crowe, who I met recently while I was having a dream. This piece is called Why Did Prince Live in a House That Looked Like a Call Centre in Clonmel? by Russell Crowe. Why did Prince live in a house that looked like a call centre in Clonmel? Look up Prince's house on Google, look it up, and tell me that his house doesn't look like a call centre in Clonmel. It's perfectly square. It has that white Celtic tiger cladding on the outside that makes the building look like it's made out of plastic. It has a car park, a smoking area. It has a bark mulch with the type of hardy evergreen shrubbery that you only ever see in an Irish industrial estate or retail park. There's fire exits and the inside, there's fire retardant carpet. Why did Prince, why did Prince, one of the greatest musicians of all time, live in a house that looked like a call centre in Clonmel? He died in that house, in front of the elevator. Don't look up those photographs. Why did Prince's house looked like a Vodafone call centre in Clonmel. And you might be wondering, why do I, Russell Crowe, even know what a call centre in Clonmel looks like? Because I met Richard Harris on the set of Gladiator and he lived in Limerick and I drove from Dublin to Limerick and I stopped in Clonmel and I saw an ESAT Digiphone call centre and I said to myself, that call centre looks like Prince's house. Why does Prince live in a house that looks like a call centre in Clonmel. Thank you to Russell Crowe for submitting that piece of prose. I'm telling fibs. Russell Crowe didn't send me that. But there are little strands of of truth. So I I used to work in a call centre. And I did have a dream. I had a dream last week that I was back working in that fucking call centre. I hated the job. I really disliked that job. But I had a dream last week that I was back in that call centre answering the phones and Russell Crowe was my team leader. I don't think he had any ears and he kept trying to be my friend. So we went out to the smoking area and he was smoking those really small silk-cut red cigarettes. And then we both found Prince's dead body and he said, I'm going to ring the guards and say that you killed Prince. And I woke up. I woke up with a poor opinion of Russell Crowe. And then I had to I then I had to have a chat with myself and say it was a dream. It was a dream. Russell Crowe didn't accuse you of killing Prince. And he didn't find his body in a call centre out in Clonmel. And I don't know how a Russell Crowe ended up in my dream, but Prince did actually live in a house that looked exactly like a call centre in an Irish industrial estate. Paisley Park it was called. Like look it up online. Prince's fucking house. The maddest house you'll ever see. Like, do you remember MTV Cribs? That programme that used to be on fucking years ago. Where famous musicians would showcase their houses. And they usually lived in these giant plush mansions. Now, most of them were fake. They rented them out for the day. But Prince was a proper gigantic multi-millionaire, huge rock star. Who could afford a massive luxury custom-made mansion. And he didn't. He literally lived in a building that looked like a call centre in Clonmel. Now, he built it himself. It was custom made. But possibly, like, the ugliest celebrity house I've ever seen. But so ugly that it's intriguing. And if you look at photographs of the inside of Prince's house, you get this unsettling feeling. At first, I'm like, something's off here and I don't know exactly what it is. What's going on with the inside of Prince's house here that doesn't feel comfortable in any way? And then you look at the skirting boards... And the doors and the tables, the furniture, the walls. And you realise that Prince's house deliberately looks like the inside of a corporate office. And then other parts of it look like the backstage of a venue. And at no point in any of Prince's house, with the possible exception of his bedroom, nowhere in his house feels like anywhere you could call home. And I couldn't understand it. I was like, why the fuck would you do? Why would you want to live here, man? And he spent a lot of time there. Like, why do you want to live in a call centre? And I think the reason was, is 
Prince was an absolute workaholic. He dedicated all of his time to work and work only. I think he needed his house to feel like work. Like if you look at the doors in his house, it's real horrible corporate wood panelling with emergency exit signs. And the carpet is like that cheap fire retardant carpet. It feels like an office space. I think he had to do it so he didn't feel like shit when he was on tour. Like the most insufferable part of being on tour when it's your job. Doing the actual gig is lots of fun. But the waiting around is horrendous. Either waiting around in hotel lobbies, hotel rooms or backstage at venues. And then by the end of the tour you eventually get used to it. And then you're back home. And when you're back home it's all comfortable and homely. And then it feels terrible to go on tour again. So I think Prince toured so much and worked so much that he just designed his entire house to feel like perpetual hotel room slash office space slash backstage. And I think that's why his house Paisley Park looks like that. You can do tours of it. It's in Minnesota. I'd love to do a tour of it. But I was talking to someone recently who works in the music industry. Someone who works on big tours. Like Coldplay sized tours where they're touring all around the world for six months. And he told me about a dude he knows. I think he worked as a lighting man. But this person would spend nine months of their year on tour with a band. And usually when a big band will do a huge tour, they like book the same hotel in every city. They'll go to like Hilton and do a deal with Hilton and every single city they stay in on the tour, they stay in a Hilton hotel. So this dude, this lighting man, he had a room built in his house that looked exactly to a fucking T like a Hilton hotel room in his house so that when he got off tour, he never had to feel that experience of being home. He just stayed in a Hilton hotel room that was in his house. Like in the mercantile era, the 1700s and the 1800s, when sailors would be at sea for like eight months a year and then they couldn't return to land. They'd get land sickness. They'd be on a boat so much, moving with the water, that when they got the dry land, they'd get dizzy and they'd feel physically sick and they'd get anxiety and depression, so they just had to stay on boats. So that's why I think Prince's house looked like a call centre in Clonmel. And that was the only way he could not have his soul crushed by the process of touring. And that's why I think Prince's house looks like that. I think Prince was doing that. And Russell Crowe did actually come to Limerick and he may have seen a call centre here. When Russell Crowe was on the film Gladiator, Richard Harris was in that film too. It was like 2002. Richard Harris played the part of Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is someone I need to do a podcast on. Also because he has a book called Meditations, which is like a fucking precursor to CBT, written in the first century. But Richard Harris and Russell Crowe became friends on the set of Gladiator. And then Richard Harris said to Russell Crowe, I come from a city called Limerick, Russell, and you have to promise me that one day you will visit my home city of Limerick and you'll watch a game of rugby in Thoman Park and you'll have a pint of Guinness. And Russell Crowe said, I promise you, Richard Harris, that I'll do this. And then Richard Harris died in 2006, I think. And Russell Crowe was like, well, I promised Richard Harris I was going to come to Limerick and go to Thoman Park and have a pint of Guinness. So he did. But he tried to do it all secretly, you know. He didn't make a big deal out of it. And then Russell Crowe came to Limerick and he had a big long ponytail and he wore a giant hat. (laughs) He wore a big huge hat so no one would know it was Russell Crowe. But he did such a good job of disguising himself that he went to a pub in Limerick, Nancy Blake's, and he got there late and, and they'd stopped serving. And he looked so much not like Russell Crowe that the barmaid refused to serve him. And then it ended up in the paper and it was just reading the local paper in Limerick and the barmaids being interviewed and getting interrogated and questioned as to why she refused Russell Crowe a pint. 
So that's real, that happened. I can't find the fucking news article online, but anyone in Limerick will tell you, like, that happened, everyone remembers it. Let's ask, let's ask artificial intelligence. And if you've been listening to this podcast over the past few months, you'll know that I've trained an artificial intelligence model to have the brain of 19th century politician Charles Stuart Parnell. So let's ask artificial intelligence Charles Stuart Parnell. Did Russell Crowe get refused a pint in Limerick? My dear compatriot, the honourable gentleman Mr Russell Crowe, as of the year 2021, which marked the limit of my training data, there is no record to suggest that Mr Crowe was ever refused a pint, be it in Nancy Blake's or any other establishment within the vibrant city of Limerick. Now, we live in a world of constant change, where news travels faster than the wind itself. The truth can oftentimes be obscured by rumours and hearsay. Let us honour the truth with the same passion with which we pursue justice. After all, knowledge is the cornerstone of any free society. Alright, Mr. fucking Charles Stuart Parnell, that's the weird thing about artificial intelligence. So I asked artificial intelligence Charles Stuart Parnell, was Russell Crowe ever refused a pint in Limerick? He answered and said no. However, I didn't mention the pub Nancy Blake's, but artificial intelligence Charles Stuart Parnell did. So AI is covering for Russell Crowe. Why would it know the name of the pub that it happened in, but yet say it didn't happen? Okay. Did Russell Crowe accuse me of killing Prince in my dream? Esteemed blind boy. As the renowned Charles Stuart Parnell might have stated, the domain of dreams is the last true refuge of the individual, untouched by the hand of another. I find myself bereft of the capability to witness or comprehend the ethereal occurrences that manifest in the realm of human dreams. Is it fair for me to hold a grudge against Russell Crowe because of something he said to me in a dream? The esteemed Mr. Russell Crowe, being a man of the waking world, (laughs) possesses no dominion over the realm of your dreams. The phantom of Mr. Crowe that appeared in your dream was not the man himself, but a construct, a figment of your imagination, born of your own subconscious mind. Therefore, my dear friend, it would be unjust to bear a grudge against Mr. Crowe for an offence committed by a spectre within a dream, as that spectre is not the man merely a shade reflecting some aspect of your own subconscious you dirty cunt (laughs) so I think I killed Prince (laughs) a dirty bastard I'm projecting I think I killed Prince I didn't do you know what it is I'm being disrespectful to Prince I'm disrespecting Prince's choice to create a fucking house that's just a consistent place of work all the time. Maybe that's what... So maybe my unconscious mind is saying, chill out a bit, buddy. Let Prince worry about his house. You worry about your house. Why are you projecting onto Prince? So that's why in my dream, Russell Crowe accused me of killing Prince. And, and I am fucking projecting because, yeah, I'm sitting here in a fucking corp- I've a corporate office. My podcast studio is a, literally a, a bland, grey, corporate fucking room with fire-retardant carpet and fire doors and emergency exits. I, I work in a studio that's a, that's a corporate office so that I can imbue a sense of structure and rigour on my job which has the potential to be chaotic so I'm actually project thank you Charles Stuart Parnell I'm projecting my own shit on Prince I'm judging Prince I'm go- oh fucking Prince what a lunatic what a mad bastard man would you not just get a nice couch for yourself why'd you have to build your house like an office I'm fucking I'm doing the same thing I'm projecting on Prince I'm embarrassed or ashamed in some way about my own eccentricity, I refuse to take ownership of it 
So I've projected it on Prince by judging and shaming his, his house, which is none of my business. And then Russell Crowe appeared in my dream to say, I'm going to tell the guards that you killed Prince. So that's my unconscious mind saying, go handy on Prince, blind boy. You're projecting, buddy. Go handy. You'll worry about your office. Prince worries about his office. Jeez, I think I just used artificial intelligence there as an effective form of therapy. Rest in peace, Prince. So that's all we have time for this week. That was this week's podcast. Imagine that was the podcast. Fuck me. What an odd start. So for this week's podcast, I'm going to answer some of your questions. Because I haven't done a question answering podcast in, I think, like six weeks or something like that. And I got asked some wonderful questions on Instagram, of course. Because Twitter is fucked. Man, Twitter's gone bad. Basically, with Twitter, Elon Musk took away everybody's blue tick. Right? And now if you want a blue tick, you have to buy one. And it's like €8 a month or something like that. But the thing is, the only people who are buying blue ticks tend to be right-leaning people. People who lean right politically. Twitter was always a bit of a a left-leaning space. But anyone who's been on Twitter and is left-leaning, they're kind of not buying a blue tick on principle because they don't want to... They just don't want to do it, almost as a protest against Elon Musk. But what's happened now with Twitter is... Because only people with right-leaning opinions have blue ticks... It tends to be all you see now. For instance, today, a video came up on my timeline. And I won't describe the video, but a video came up on my timeline from someone I don't follow. And the video contained racist disinformation. It was disinformation and it was racist. Now, usually, if you see disinformation on somewhere like Twitter, you go to the replies or the quote tweets, and then someone will say in the replies or quote tweets, this video is wrong and here's why this video is wrong so this is disinformation but now the replies that you see first to anything on Twitter are all blue tick accounts so when I saw this racist video I couldn't see anyone disproving that this was disinformation or this was incorrect because every single response was a blue tick person with right leaning racist views And I had to scroll right down to the bottom after about 60 comments to finally see someone who didn't have a blue tick saying, the information in this video is harmful, wrong and racist and here is why. So Twitter has radically changed as a space. And if your job requires you to use social media, like me, I don't think you can rely upon Twitter anymore. So I'm kind of moving to Instagram. Instagram... Instagram's just a nicer place and it's always been a nicer place. And people are just... People behave on Instagram a little bit like they behave in real life. And in real life, people tend to be a lot more nicer than they are online. So when I ask on Instagram, do you have any questions for this podcast? I just get like 500... Like I think it was like 500 people just giving me really, really good questions people genuinely engaged going yeah I've got a question for the podcast so I was fucking utterly spoiled for choice questions this week from Instagram follow me on Instagram by the way blind by boat club if you do have an Instagram so Megan asked what is the history of the carrot cake now when I saw that question I went yeah what is the fucking history of the carrot cake I think I need to think about carrot cakes now I mean carrot cakes are great aren't they Carrot cakes are fantastic. They're one of those cakes that are a mark of culinary maturity, I find. Like when I was a child and I first tasted a carrot cake, I was like, what the fuck is this? Ma, you bitch. (laughs) No, I didn't say that. But the first time I tasted a carrot cake, it very much challenged my palate. Because... You have to search for the sweetness in a carrot cake. Alright, you've got the icing on top. And that carrot cake fucking icing. 
that's the real deal. Carrot cake icing is, um, I think there's a bit of cream cheese in there, is there? It's like a cream cheese icing, so it's not as intense as straight up. What you call that icing that just looks like cum? What? <laughs> I've got the giggles this week. I got, I've, <laughs> the Guardian called me one of the best food writers in the world. And here I am asking, which is the icing that looks like cum? But you know regular icing where it's just melted fucking sugar. Carrot cake icing is different, you know, because it has... I, th- I think there's cream cheese in there, so there, it has that the cheesy tang to it. So the, the icing is sweet, but the main body of the carrot cake, it's, it's like gingerbread if it went to college and got a job in the civil service. There's a sensibility to carrot cake. It's not for kids. It's not for children. There's... Sometimes there's there's walnuts involved, so... There's a meatiness to the body of carrot cake. There's a a faint meatiness that comes from the walnut. Then you've got... The memory of ginger. But it's not not there. It's it's the memory of ginger. It's, It's a rumor about ginger. And then, of course, there's a heaviness to it. There's a real heaviness to carrot cake. And a moisture whereby if you eat a carrot cake like it doesn't feel like a dessert I mean if you took the icing off and just ate the the fucking ate carrot cake bareback (laughs) then (laughs) and you just (laughs) it's almost like a meal it's not like a dessert. I'm unintentionally sexualizing carrot cake here and it's the least sexual of all the fucking cakes. It's a very functional cake. Which... I'd nearly eat it for lunch. I'd, I'd nearly eat the carrot cake sans icing and go, that works as a lunch. That does. And I think what it is, is it, it's the carrots. There's fucking carrots in it. There's grated carrots in it. But when you're eating it, you, you kind of have to go, oh, there's carrots in this, really? Tell me more. And and someone has to tell you before you get the carrotness of it. So I f- carrot cake is great. It's fantastic. It's a very mature choice that challenges the palate a bit. And first you got to start talking about carrots. Because let's face it, like, it's a cake made out of carrots. It's a, it's a cake made out of carrots. Are you mad? There's a bit of that. You can't make a cake out of carrots, Russell Crowe. You lying bastard. So the thing is with carrots, they're not real. You know, they're they're humans created carrots. Like dogs. Dogs are not real. I've I've, I've maintained this for a long time. A a dog isn't real. There's no such thing as a, a dog in nature. A dog is a wolf that became friendly with humans over thousands of years. And then became this new animal which exists alongside humans. It's domesticated. Carrots are, are the same. There's not really such thing as a fucking carrot in the wild. In Persia, around that area, maybe five, six thousand years ago, I'm talking cradle of civilization. Persia, Babylon, Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent there. When humans stopped being hunter-gatherers who moved with herds and decided to settle down into villages and towns and started exploring agriculture. There were wild plants that were carrots, right? But a carrot isn't a tuber, like like a spud, like a potato, you know, even though it grows under the ground. A carrot is just a root. It's an engorged root. So the first ever carrots 5,000 years ago, they would have been related to parsley. And they would have had roots, like yellow roots, that people would have eaten and said, the roots of this plant taste nice. I wish there was more of them. So people would breed these ancient carrots so that the roots grew fatter and fatter. And then all of a sudden, after a couple of thousand years, you had something that looked a bit like a carrot with an engorged fat root but they were yellow and and some of them were even fucking purple and 
fast forward a couple of thousand years and now carrots are quite popular in Europe around the 10th century. But again, these carrots, they were purple, yellow. They would have looked a bit like a small parsnip. Carrots and parsnips are very closely related. And these carrots in the 10th century, they wouldn't have been as sweet as the carrots we have now. Like when you eat a raw carrot, you can taste the parsnipness of it. Like, I can't describe the taste of a parsnip as anything other than parsnip. It, it, there's a tartness to it, you know? A tart herbiness. And that's present in carrots. So how did we end up with orange carrots that are kind of sweet? The carrots that we know today. Well, this, ironically, there's a historic parallel with this. And, like, orange men. You know, the people up north, the unionists up north, the fucking orange men. So, orange carrots modern orange carrots, they come from the Netherlands, specifically around the 15th century, because the royal family in the Netherlands then was the House of Orange. And this is where I'm relating to, you know, William of Orange, the Battle of the Boyne, the orange men up north in Ireland today, who celebrate the Battle of the Boyne and the ascension of William of Orange to the English throne. The House of Orange in, in, in Amsterdam this was the 15th century, so you had all these competing fucking royal houses in Europe. And the Dutch were like, we're the House of Orange, so we think orange things are class. We think orange things are brilliant. So the Dutch started to breed carrots that looked orange. What makes carrots orange is a, it's a pigment called beta-carotene. This pigment, it's in a lot of foods as an additive. Do you remember when we were kids, there was like... A moral panic because everybody... Sunny Delight was really popular when I was about 12. Sunny Delight is this this orange drink. It's shit now. It used to be fucking... Oh, man. Sunny Delight when I was 12 was like crack cocaine. It was incredible. And if you drank enough of it, kids were going orange. Kids' faces were turning orange and their eyeballs were turning orange. And parents were freaking out and it was all over the news. This is because Sunny Delight had a fuckload of beta-carotene in it to make it orange. But beta-carotene is also what's in tanning pills. I don't think anyone takes tanning pills anymore. But you can buy pills in the chemist and they'll give you a weird looking tan. They'll turn your face and eyeballs orange. That's beta-carotene. Beta-carotene is also, there's quite a lot of it in Irish grass because of our ample rainfall. And Irish butter, such as Kerrygold, like our butter is quite yellow compared to American butter or Canadian butter. And that's because we have a fuck ton of beta-carotene in our butter that comes from the grass that gets all the rain and finds its way into the cows and their milk. So the Dutch were breeding these carrots to make them extra orange. And they were upping the beta-carotene in it and also upping the sweetness of the carrot. So it was the Dutch and the House of Orange, where the orange men come from, where we get the modern sweet orange carrot. But it was around this time that the carrot cake started to be invented. There wasn't a lot of sugar around the place in the 15th century. 15th century means the 1400s. So that's before what's called the Columbian Exchange, when the quote-unquote great nations of Europe colonised the continent of America and killed all the indigenous people. That That's when humans were like oh there's sugar cane here and also like a hundred years later practices in in technology and industry led to more efficient ways of extracting sugar from things but in the 15th century there wasn't a huge amount of sugar there was honey but that was expensive as fuck and even with sugar beets they couldn't produce sugar from sugar beets on an industrial scale so people didn't have a lot of sugar so carrots were fucking unreal to the mouth in the 15th century. A carrot to a person in the 15th century was the sweetest thing they'd ever tasted. So in the 15th century, quite a lot of cakes were carrot cakes because this was a great source of sweetness. So quite a few cakes had carrots added to it. So then what happens is the years roll on. We get to the 16th century, 17th century. Colonization is happening. Sugarcane, molasses, the Industrial Revolution. Now people have greater access to sweet things. So people stopped kind of using carrots in cakes and the carrot cake was kind of forgotten about. 
until World War II. Carrots became quite important in World War II, particularly over in England, right? So in England, when the Nazis were bombing England, Britain had, like, blackouts, which meant the Luftwaffe are going to come and bomb Coventry or Sheffield or wherever. So they'd turn off literally every single fucking light. You couldn't even turn on a candle. So for weeks and months, and it would have been real shit in winter, if you lived in a city in Britain during World War II, there was no light at all. P- people got in trouble for lighting a cigarette because the Nazi bombers would be above and they're looking down trying to find cities. So you had to make the city look as, as black as the countryside from above. And it was really shit for people. Like there's kind of a, like a, an urban myth in that there's probably some truth to it, but it can't be fully verified that more people died from the blackout than the actual bombs that were dropped because of the amount of accidents that happened. People would drive down the road without their lights on and no street lights and, and kill people in cars because it was in complete pitch black blackout. People would fall downstairs. It had a terrible impact on people's mental health because you're not like you're not even allowed to turn on a candle to read a book unless maybe your windows are perfectly blacked out so no light can escape. But there used to be police going around and if you did anything that involved light, you got in trouble and you were it was taken real seriously because one cigarette or one light turned on in a kitchen could mean a neighborhood getting bombed. But at the same time, there was rationing going on. So you couldn't turn the lights on in case the Nazis bombed you. And also, all the food in Britain needed to be sent for the war effort. So people were encouraged to eat less, to literally ration, and also, if possible, to grow as much vegetables as they can at home in their own gaffs. Like, people used to build makeshift bomb shelters out their back garden called Anderson Shelters. And then on the roof of the bomb shelter, they'd have a little victory garden, as it was known. And in this, they were encouraged to grow vegetables that grew easily like parsnips carrots and spuds but the British government also engaged in kind of a propaganda campaign to boost morale to tell people like how wonderful these vegetables are that they can grow themselves at home and one of the vegetables that got a lot of good press at the time was the carrot and the reason being there's all these blackouts you can't see fucking shit but carrots have all this beta carotene in them and beta carotene when they, I think when, when humans consume beta-carotene, I think we turn it into vitamin A. And vitamin A helps the eyes. So they put out all these adverts in World War II in Britain saying, eat as many carrots as possible because it'll make your eyes fantastic and you'll be able to see in the dark during blackouts. Bullshit, but it was just for morale. But it's from this that we see the resurgence of the carrot cake because people were rationing sugar. So you use the least amount of sugar that you could, least amount of oil, the least amount of butter. So the British, the Ministry of Defence would give people recipes for carrot cake where it's like, use this fucking thing that you can grow out your back garden and you can grow it yourself. So use as much of it as possible and make this cake out of it. So that's where like the carrot cake that we enjoy today kind of comes from that World War II recipe. It, it, It was a cake that was sold to people as something that could help them see in the dark so they didn't get bombed by Nazis and the reason it was orange is because of fucking William of Orange the orange man and quite a few recipes like that survived beyond World War II as like nostalgic food that people enjoyed so the carrot cake became a staple another one was well no one does this anymore but you couldn't get bananas during World War II in fucking England because the bananas came from South America so people used to grow parsnips and a substitute for mashed banana in World War II was to get a parsnip cook it mash it and add a little bit of vanilla essence so that's the history of carrot cake which I just fucking knew it would be fascinating I knew it it's too weird a cake I can't explain it like I'm not that interested in finding out about chocolate cake I just know when I eat chocolate cake, it's like yum yum. This makes a lot of sense. Everything in this cake makes sense. It's fucking chocolate and it's cake. 
I'm not thoroughly enthused to go looking into the history of, of chocolate cake. I'd imagine it, it's just... We got this new thing called chocolate as a result of the Colombian exchange and we mixed it with sugar and we made a cake. Whoop-de-woo. What a fucking carrot cake. That's nuts. So I knew, like, I want to find out how this happened. Sometimes I feel that way about Black Forest Ghetto. Like, Black Forest Ghetto is the other side. Like, Black Forest Ghetto is nearly too delicious. Black Forest, like, who the fuck's got a problem with Black Forest Ghetto? Like, Black Forest, my God. Chocolate cake base. Fresh cream. Lovely cherry tomatoes. Sprinkles of chocolate. Like, Black Forest Ghetto is, is nuts when you think about it. And like a real one. It's rare you get a real one. Like, not the shit ones you buy in a petrol station, but something something that, that a person has really put some time into. And I went looking up the history of Black Forest Ghetto, and it's not very interesting. It's as I expected. It's from the Black Forest region in Germany, and some chef just decided, let's get a bunch of delicious ingredients and put them into a cake. And it makes sense. So I know the history would be a bit boring. See, carrot cake is about conflict. That's why I like fuck carrot cake is about conflict. I described it earlier like... There's a, there's a story going on in a bite of carrot cake. There's opposing narratives in there. You know, it, it's carrots, carrots, really? In a cake? Do you know what I mean? There's a... That type of conflict in a, in a morsel of food, there has to be history and a story there. No one just decides that. No one just goes, let's put carrots in a cake like mad bastards. No. There has to be conflict narrative and history to arrive at something that weird. And there is. It's an orange man's cake that helps you see in the dark so you don't get bombed by the Nazis. Let's consult Charles Stuart Parnell. Why did I describe carrot cake? In a sexual way. What's going on for me. Psychologically. To do that. Well. As individuals we are a complex tapestry. Of experiences, thoughts and emotions. Food in all its glorious variety. Often evokes strong feelings and memories. Due to its inherent sensory nature. The act of eating can be quite an intimate experience. Involving taste, smell and touch. Senses that are also engaged in romantic and sexual encounters. If one finds oneself describing a carrot cake, or any food for that matter, in a sensual or sexual way, it might be an expression of this intimate relationship with food. There's a term for this known as gastrophilia, which is a love or deep appreciation for food, sometimes expressed in a manner akin to sensuality. It's important, however, to maintain an awareness that there is a significant distinction between appreciating the sensory delights of food and objectifying individuals or relationships in a manner that could be inappropriate or uncomfortable. So I think what Charles Stuart Parnell is saying there is, is I'm not, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to fuck a carrot cake, and I don't want to use a carrot cake to fuck anybody else. And you couldn't, because a carrot cake is is flaccid by its nature; it has perpetual speed, Mickey. So so long as I'm not there, I'm grand, I'm doing okay. It's okay to describe a carrot cake in, in a, a sensual or sexual fashion. And the subject of food writing. My favourite fucking food writing. Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway has a, a biography called A Movable Feast about his time in Paris. And I swear to fuck, it's not a biography. It's a man in the 1920s who wished he had Instagram. A Movable Feast is... It's him writing down all the wonderful dinners that he ate in fantastic detail and wanting to like that's what we do with Instagram now you know Instagram is the new grace before meals if, if you're in a restaurant and you get a nice piece of food the first thing you do is you take a photograph of it sometimes you want to share it but I, I don't really I don't share photographs of my food with anyone but if I'm in a fucking restaurant I'm taking a photograph of a nice bit of food that I had so I can memorise it I want to hold it as a memory and Hemingway's biography a movable feast, that's what that is. He just describes fantastic fucking meals and fantastic drinks. It's a it's wonderful to read. He actually found it by accident. So Hemingway lived in, in Paris in his twenties, and I don't think he had a lot of money. And 
he'd been writing these descriptions of food and just almost like a diary the whole time. And he left it in a suitcase in Paris in the 1920s in, in a hotel, I think the Ritz Hotel. He just left it in a suitcase and then forgot. He forgot that he'd spent all his time writing this diary. And then when he was an older man in, in his 60s, I think, he went back to Paris and went into the hotel and the hotel were like, oh, Mr. Hemingway, we've a suitcase belonging to you from like fucking 40 years ago. And he opened it up and there was his manuscript of everything he'd written about when he was in Paris in his 20s. And that's that biography, A Movable Feast. It's fantastic. And I know it's a cliche to be going on about Hemingway. But if you're a fucking writer, if you're even thinking about writing or starting to write, you can't go wrong with fucking Hemingway. Read any of his short stories. Read Big Two-Hearted River. He wrote in this incredibly simple descriptive, highly detailed, slow prose. And when he did this, you would feel what's happening in the story. He'd never tell you what's happening in the story. His writing would make you feel it. And Hemingway is one of those writers that if I'm to sit down and write a thousand words, if I'm writing a short story, Hemingway is someone I'd crack open beforehand just to ground myself just to remind myself what nice, clear writing is. It's like listening to the Beatles, listening to the early Beatles if you were about to write a song, to remind yourself what a really catchy melody is. Okay, it's time for the ocarina pause now, and then I'll answer more questions. I've got my Puerto Rican guero. You're going to hear an advert for something. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That was the ocarina pause. You would have heard an advert for something I don't know what for. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, if you listen to it, if it brings you mirth, merriment, distraction, joy, whatever has you listening to this podcast, please consider becoming a patron because this podcast is my full time job. This is how I earn a living. This is how I rent out this office. It's how I live and exist and pay my bills. And patrons are the reason I'm able to show up each week and deliver you a podcast that I genuinely care about, deliver something that I can put time and effort into. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. And if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. Because the person who is a patron, they're paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast I get to earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness and it's worked fantastically so far and I hope it never changes. Also, it keeps me independent. Keeps me independent. Advertisers don't come in and say, change the content of what you speak about so we can get more listens. I guarantee you, every single advertiser in the world would say to me, I like that bit there about the carrot cake. But you see the first 20 minutes where you spoke about a dream where Russell Crowe accused you of killing Prince? Can you take that bit out? It's a bit weird. No. If 
fuck off. And that's what patrons do. That's why patronage, that's, is that a word? Patronage is, it's a good way to support independent media. Whatever independent media you enjoy, try and support it directly if you can. My new collection of short stories, Topographia Hibernica, is coming out in November. Pre-orders are available right now. They're signed copies. They're one of a kind. Go to my Instagram and on my Instagram, Blind by Ball Club, I have a little pinned story at the top and you'll see a link in there of where you can pre-order the book. Also, I asked my book company to make me a custom URL. So if you go to topographiahibernica.com, that should also give you a link of all the different ways you can pre-order the book, including internationally. Also this week, I have an audiobook coming out, which I'd forgotten about, but my book company just told me it's coming out. So I've two collections of short stories already, Boulevard Wren and The Gospel According to Blind Boy. And I never released these as audiobooks because the book company I was with at the time, I don't think they had the infrastructure to release audiobooks. So this new publisher I'm with, they are releasing my first two books as audiobooks and one of them comes out this week and it's called Small Bones in a Fist. Now I will put links up to where you can buy this on my Instagram or whatever. It's an audiobook and it's a mixture of, there's going to be two of them and it's a mixture of stories from my first two collections called Small Bones in a Fist. It's not just an audiobook of me reading my short stories. Also, for each individual story, I composed a score. I composed a piece of music to act alongside and underneath the story. So loads of you have been asking me for audiobooks of my first two collections. One of them is going to be available this week. Now, some of the stories on it you will have heard on this podcast just to be clear with you. So some of the stories on it you will have heard on this podcast, but there's other ones from my second collection which are new and haven't been heard. So it's up to you if you want to buy it or not. And also my new collection, Topographia Hibernica, when that comes out in November, there will be an audiobook also. Whether I compose a custom score for that, I don't know, because it took me fucking six months to do the last one. Why did I compose a custom score? I think because I can. My brother, I think it was, said it to me at the time. He's like, if Roddy Dial was able to compose music, he probably would as well. And it's like, that's a good point. So because I can compose scores and compose music, why not incorporate that aural art form into the written fucking art form of of writing a short story and mix the two of them together to create a new piece of art for the crack? Okay, contractually obligated gig announcements so I don't get sued. August, the 26th of August, I am in the Cork Opera House for Cork Podcast Week. That's going to be good fun. Then, on the 28th of August, I'm in Vicker Street up in Dublin. Vicker Street is always amazing. Come along. Then on Friday, the 1st of September, no, the 9th of September, Friday the 9th of September, I'm in Birmingham at the Mosley Folk Festival. Then... Saturday the 9th of September I'm in the Pavilion in Dunleary. Can't wait to go to Dunleary. What else have I got? Belfast, the waterfront on the 11th... Oh man, I'm shit at maths, man. Hold on. Waterfront, Belfast, the 18th of November 2023. Come along, that'll be amazing. Right, we're nearly 50 minutes into the fucking podcast and I've only answered one question and described a dream. Haley asks, am I going to make more music? Um, so yes, as you know, over, I went a bit mad over lock. we all went a bit mad over lockdown. Over lockdown, I had this project that I was doing on the live streaming website, Twitch, where every fucking Thursday for two years, I wrote and produced songs live to the events of a video game. And it was tremendous crack. It was very intense. I think I wrote about 400 fucking songs and I haven't done that in in, since December I think and I listen back to some of the songs especially if I have a bit of Baldy and I go fuck it some of these aren't bad at all so once this book is finished I definitely think I'm going to go back to Twitch and start doing 
music again because I, I love it. But the process of it is very draining. It's very draining for my brain. It's like spending an hour on Twitch writing songs really intensely and being in intense flow for like 90 minutes. It's like it uses all my creativity for the week so I can't also write and do that. And it's different parts of my brain. The musical part of my brain and the writing part of my brain are they're kind of two separate compartments. And musical creativity is quite bodily. It's very abstract, very feeling-based. Whereas writing creativity is, is cognitive, that involves thinking. And I need to give the music part of my brain a rest if I'm to engage the writing part and vice versa. So I really, I cannot wait. Hopefully, hopefully like by July, I'll be back on Twitch making music and making songs. I'll see what I might do something different this time, but I'm really looking forward to it. And also, if I can find the time, I'd love to get all those songs that I made on Twitch and kind of whittle them down to maybe 90 songs or something and edit them a bit and master them and put them all up on Spotify as a huge album as just this weird fucking lockdown project where here's an album of 90 songs but every single song you hear was literally made up on the spot. I'd love to put that type of project out because it's just, it's odd and the, the work is there, the music is made, I just have to find the time to edit it and master it and get it into a shape that I'd be comfortable putting out. Scanners was asking, would I be interested in doing an episode where I do more guided meditations? Like if loads of ye wanted it, of course I would. I'm not a professional expert meditation giving person. But a simple mindfulness meditation is so simple, I think I'd get away with doing it if people liked it and people wanted it. I spoke about meditation a few podcasts back, about the benefit of mindful meditation and in particular diaphragmatic breathing and how it can help us to emotionally regulate and be calm. And there's something I, I should have mentioned at the time and it only came to me after the episode. But here's a wonderful example of mindfulness meditation and we, we never call it this. Irish people in particular, we all grew up praying to St. Anthony if we lost something. Even if you're not into fucking religion. Like, I'll do it. Even if you, if you don't give a fuck about religion, if you don't consider yourself Catholic, if you lose something today, something, usually something important, right? I'm talking a bank card, a set of keys. When you lose something and the loss of this thing causes you great stress because it's like, fuck me, where's my bank card? Is it down behind the couch or did someone steal it and now I have to cancel it? You know that anxiety that you get when you've lost something important and you're looking everywhere, usually as a last resort. Most of us will say a little prayer to St. Anthony. I know I will. I'll get to the point where it's like, I don't know where the fuck my bank card is. I really don't want to cancel it. Bollocks, I've searched everywhere. And then I go, fuck. Okay, I'm going to have to say a prayer to St. Anthony. Bollocks. And I hate doing it because I know that it's superstition and I'm not religious. But if I can't find my bank card, I'm going to say a little prayer to St. Anthony. And then I do. I don't know any prayers to St. Anthony, but I just go, St. Anthony. Please, please, alright, I don't ask you for much. I know you know I don't believe in you that much, but please, for fuck's sake, St. Anthony. I'm just asking you, please, can you find my bank card? I'm begging you, please, St. Anthony. And you do it, and then lo and behold, ah, oh, there it is. There's my bank card, it was there all along. And then you find it, and then you get that feeling afterwards where you go, fuck, man. Maybe this religion shit is real, because like I just prayed to St. Anthony there and I found my bank card. It tends to work quite a bit, and when it does work, it makes me question my beliefs, to be honest. And then I started thinking about it differently. When you lose your bank card, and you lose something that will create high stress, think about your body in that moment. 
So you're legitimately worried. And it's rational to be worried because you're in a threatening situation. You've lost a key or you've lost a bank card. And the consequences of this are quite negative. So your anxiety rises naturally. And you're searching all around the house. And you're focusing on not necessarily finding the card. Like when you go, I've checked the flower pot. I've checked under the couch. And you've gone to all the usual places. And then you're like, fuck, I do not know where this is. When you get to that point, then you start entertaining the what ifs. Ah, fuck, what if someone's nicked it now and they're after buying a lot of plane tickets? Am I going to have to go with the fraud department? Ah, fuck, what if I've lost this key and now I'm locked out of my gaff? You start to go to the what ifs and you start to think of worst case scenarios and the thoughts and thinking of the anxiety process kick in. And then what happens is your cortisol levels in your body rise. Without knowing it, your breathing is fucking shit. Your breathing's in a shallow way. Your heart is beating fast. And you're a person who's experiencing anxiety while looking for a thing you can't find. When that happens, emotion has taken over your body. And emotion is now driving your thinking process. You're not searching for solutions. You're scanning your environment for threats because you're experiencing anxiety and then you pray to Saint Anthony and when you pray to Saint Anthony you're engaging in, 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 in a type of mindfulness meditation when you pray to Saint Anthony you have to think in quite an abstract way you're appealing to a, a grateful gratitude side of yourself you're trying to appeal to something higher than you some greater meaning and asking a deity to help you find your bank card, when you engage in that process, your breathing naturally will slow down because you're praying to St. Anthony. And then you come out of that and all of a sudden, there's your bank card. But what happened there has nothing to do with St. Anthony. What happened is you've just simply allowed better oxygen into your body. Your cortisol levels are down. Your emotions are more regulated. You're not experiencing anxiety and fear. And because of that, the card was there all along. You just kept walking past it and looking over it because you were thinking about what might go wrong rather than truly, mindfully searching for it in the area. So that's what, that's what praying to St. Anthony is. That's a mindfulness meditation. It takes you out of emotional thinking into calm, emotionally re- regulated mindful thinking and then all of a sudden ah it was right under my nose all along and I found it because I was calm that's mindfulness praying to Saint Anthony is a very crude type of mindfulness that we do when we find ourselves in a natural state of anxiety and mindfulness and mindfulness meditation and the consistent practice of mindfulness in whatever situation you find yourself in you're doing the same thing If I wake up in the morning, something that can be triggering for me is my email inbox. You know, you get up in the morning and I have to search my email inbox and I'm going, oh no, what what could go wrong in here? What are people asking me to do? What bad news am I going to receive? So I open it and there's like six emails and they're ones I'm going to have to respond to. Not particularly pleasant, not something I enjoy, just the boring part of my job. And some of it might involve conflict, disagreeing with people. It's just the shit I have to do. If I'm not grounded around my inbox in the morning, I start to experience anxiety. And I start to go, I don't want to deal with that right now. I'm going to put it off. I'm afraid of what might happen. So then I don't respond to any email. I let it snowball. And then it's the next day. Now I have twice as many emails to respond to. I have a bunch of emails I should have responded to yesterday and I didn't. So now I've actually created a real problem for myself. Now I experience anxiety because I'm worried about what might go wrong. And I've created like a self-fulfilling prophecy for myself. And it's a cycle. But if I open my email in the morning, I take ownership of the fact that I'm about to open my emails now. And you know what this is like. This is going to be a little bit anxiety inducing. So now what do I do? Before I open my emails, I fucking ground myself. I sit down, I do diaphragmatic breathing in through my nose and then I feel my tummy expanding 
and now I'm emotionally regulated. The emails are still as threatening as they always were, but now I'm emotionally regulated. So when an email comes in that's slightly annoying, I'm not overestimating how stressful it is. And what do I do? I fucking respond to it there and then. I just write back there and then, and then the problem is solved, as opposed to putting it off procrastinating and then creating actual problems. So I'm praying to St. Anthony in that moment, but I'm not praying to St. Anthony, I'm just fucking breathing. Something is triggering me, and now I'm going to breathe and emotionally regulate and reduce the stress levels in my body and deal with what needs to get dealt with. And that's mindfulness in action, in a stressful situation. So using mindfulness in a stressful situation can be a bit more difficult. But like I said, the St. Anthony, we do that anyway. Praying to St. Anthony is engaging mindfulness in a crisis situation. But if you want to get good at mindfulness, practice it when it's pleasurable. This is why I'm always saying about this time of year. Practice the mindfulness on a walk. Go out for a walk and just make sure that when you're walking, mind your breathing in through the nose, feel your belly expanding so you know that you're getting full diaphragmatic breathing. And then just look at everything. Don't just walk past the tree. Really notice the fucking tree and look at it and look at the leaves and the stems and a bird that might be on it and listen to the sound that that leaves that that tree's leaves make and try and notice if the leaves of that tree sound a bit different to the leaves of the other tree and all you're doing is completely and utterly living present in the moment experiencing your environment as it happens to you in the here and fucking now as opposed to not noticing any trees because you're worrying about what might happen or what has happened before worrying about the past and worrying about the future it's quite possible you can easily go on a lovely fucking nature walk lads and just fuck it up for yourself like when I was over in Vancouver a few weeks back like I'm doing gigs so gigs can be stressful you're putting on a show so a million things can go wrong so it can be a stressful situation So I'd get up in the morning in Vancouver in this wonderful new place and I'd go for a jog down by Coal Harbour. Just this beautiful, gorgeous park and wildlife and clean air and these wonderful mountains in the distance distance that are capped with snow. Mountains I've never seen before in my life. And I I did a run one morning and it was an hour long run. And I came back and I couldn't remember any of the fucking run. I had ran past mountains higher than I'd ever seen before with snow on the top and didn't notice them because I was worrying about what might happen at the gig that night. Worrying, will the sound be okay? Will the lights be okay? I hope my guest turns up on time. And like, didn't notice a beautiful run. So that's the opposite of mindfulness and that can happen easily. You go for a lovely walk for yourself You've made a decision to go for a walk for your own mental health. And you might as well have sat at home and scratched your fucking bollocks. Mindfulness is the opposite of that. It's the active, conscious choice to say, I'm walking now. And all I gotta do is notice everything around me. You don't have to react to it. You notice everything around you. And it starts with your breathing. It starts with in through the nose feeling your tummy expanding nice slow natural breathing getting all that air into the lungs and then walking along and going look at that tree look at the bark on that tree look at that one particular leaf look at the shadow that that leaf casts on the ground look at those blades of grass what am I smelling there and noticing it the whole time so that that's what you're only focused on and it's real It's easy to do that when there's aesthetic beauty around you. So there's your practice. It's real simple. And if you practice that, then when it comes to a stressful situation, like emails or someone at work who you don't click with or someone you have conflict with, then you can engage your mindfulness and your breathing in an actual stressful situation where you really need it. Okay. I think that's all we have time for. 
I didn't even answer a question there. I just answered a question that I wanted. I, I, that was just a ramble. I answered one question about carrot cake in this entire podcast where I was asked 500 and something questions. But sure, it wouldn't be a blind by podcast if I didn't do that at this stage, would it? All right. Rub a dog. Kiss a swan. Walk over a worm. Genuflect to a fox. I'll catch you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.